0: Welcome to the podcast of San Diego First Church of the Nazarene. My name is Dee Kelly, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I'm so delighted you've chosen to join us for this uh, sermon and Bible study in Hebrews. I am grateful for the opportunity to dig into this passage of Scripture with you. Before I do, I just want to make a couple, um, uh, bring to your attention a couple things that might be of interest to you. One is that we are a church that meets on a regular basis in the um, area of Point Loma of San Diego, California. If you're in the area, either living or visiting, we would love for you to come to join us on a Sunday morning or for a midweek programming. We have Sunday school that meets at nine o'clock, classes for all ages. In addition, we have a church uh, service that gathers at 1030. And if you would like to come, we are at 3901 Loma Land Drive, in San Diego. However, if it is easier for you to join with us online, we love that as well. In the life of the church, we are stepping in next week into the first Sunday of Advent, November 28th, and are excited about celebrating the Advent season as it culminates on Christmas Day with a celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the 28th, we will meet in a combined gathering in um, our worship center, also referred to as Brown Auditorium. On December 5th, we have two presentations, one at 9 and one at 10.30, of Joyful Sounds of Christmas. Our adult choir and orchestra will be presenting a wonderful combination of music that I think you will love. On December 12th, uh, the Children's Musical, one of the favorite events of the year, will take place in the Greek Amphitheater. We're very excited about that on December 12th at 10.30. We have a regular service on December 19th, the Christmas Eve service in the Greek Amphitheater, if you're interested, and a service right after Christmas on December 26th. All of those, you are certainly invited to join us, and we will continue this podcast and study as we work our way through Advent. This particular Sunday... Um, we would normally, because of the readings, shift out of Hebrews and not visit Hebrews again until we get to um, the middle of the summer. But I felt like uh, we've never had the opportunity to speak about the chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, after having walked through so many weeks of Hebrews. And I just felt like If we would take this Sunday as a conclusion to our series on Hebrews and look at chapter 11, not as a standalone as is often done, but chapter 11 of Hebrews in the context of everything that has built up to this point that the author has done to set the stage for chapter 11 and certainly chapter 12. And so I decided this week that even though chapter 11 we revisit in the summer of next year, that I would like to complete the series on Hebrews by looking at chapter 11 uh, this Sunday. So if you have a Bible or following on a smartphone, I encourage you to open up to chapter 11. We're going to just look at um, a few of the opening verses and then make reference to what follows after these verses. So let me read it for us. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as a background to this, I simply want to say that as we have been studying through the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, There are certainly some themes that have come through uh, the scripture and some of them have been stated more than once. In fact, the last one that we have been looking at for several weeks is stated in many different ways several different times. But in the book of Hebrews, we have before us a writing that is very Jewish in nature and very affected by the context of the original audience. The original audience being a combination of Jews and Gentiles, but certainly the arguments that are made are to a crowd that is very, very Jewish because there is so much written that connects to the Old Testament writings, our Old Testament, but for the Jews of that time, their sacred scriptures. It taps into what we sometimes refer to as the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These were the sacred scriptures for the Jewish people. And so the writer of Hebrews connects this understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done to these Old Testament writings. And it continues into today's reading. Not only is there a connection to this, but there is assumed a pressure that has been exerted upon the people of the Church to give up their faith in Christ. And that pressure is coming from numerous directions. It's coming from the Roman Empire, certainly, but it's also coming from fellow Jews who feel like those who have followed the way, the way of Jesus Christ, would be far better off if they would just let go of that and return to the ancient practices that the Hebrew people had been doing for many, many years, many, many generations. It is, in many ways, what defined them as a people. And so there is a lot of pressure for them to give up this newfound faith in the way. And so into this kind of context, the writer of Hebrews offers all kinds of reasons for the people to hold the course, to bolster their faith, to trust what they have been hearing and what they have received, and to pay attention to the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit that has been placed within them. In order to warn against falling away, in order to establish an argument for them to hold steady, the writer of Hebrews Addresses Jesus in a variety of the way a variety of ways. At the beginning of the book, he speaks about Jesus as being fully human, but also Jesus as being fully divine. Jesus experiencing all of the things we have experienced, but also Jesus being the one who was chosen from the beginning of time to embody. <clears throat> the um, incarnation, God with us, the Emmanuel. So the presentation of the argument of Jesus is fully human, Jesus is fully divine, and then Jesus in the order of Melchizedek as the great high priest. And so chapter after chapter, chapters 4 through 10, or at least portions of 4 through 10, are given to this concept of Jesus being the great high priest. The one who no longer, as all the other priests have done, give offerings day after day over and over again, never making the inside of a person clean, just the outside, fulfilling the um, written law in Leviticus, but never satisfying the need or the law until Jesus came as our great high priest and on our behalf offers one sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, for all time, forever. So it is a presentation not only of Jesus as the great high priest, but Jesus as the atonement, the true offering, the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. For the one did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now that's out of the Gospel of John, but Hebrews makes this extended argument. For Jesus not only is the great high priest, but as the true offering on our behalf. Well, then we come to chapter 11, where the writer begins to talk about faith. In this context, faith in the great high priest and the great atonement, the offering done on our behalf. This then becomes for us what the law could never do and what the priests over generations could never complete not only making us clean outwardly, but making us clean inwardly. And then the writer connects us to the great history of the people who have gone before us and how they lived into faith in that which was yet to come for them so that we might live in faith looking back to what Jesus has done for us and how all of this has pointed toward our redemption, our reconciliation. Even if it is built on something that we don't fully see and truthfully may not fully comprehend. Years ago, when I, I uh, my family and I lived in another part of the country. Many of you know that we lived in an area um, that was sometimes referred to as Tornado Alley. Oklahoma City is right in the pathway of certain weather patterns, wind patterns, that make it prime for tornadoes. Certainly tornadoes can happen just about anywhere. But there are certain wind patterns that happen year in, year out, during certain seasons of the year, that make this particular part of the country very prone to tornadoes. They talk about it often. It's often referred to on the news. The weather men and weather women um, talk about having a plan if there's a tornado that comes to your area. And we had a closet that was interior in our house, and it was where we would go if they were saying that there was a tornado heading to our neighborhood. And there are a couple times where we got into that closet. It wasn't a small, tiny closet, just large enough for coats, but a little bit deeper than that. It was a place where we kept some games and stored some other things, but we cleared out enough space that we could sit in there if we needed to and had uh, a means by which to hear the news as uh, we listened to the things that take place. There was never a tornado that hit our home, certainly nearby, but not our home. There was one particular tornado, there are several, but one that I am reminded of now, of that hit south of Oklahoma City in a suburb called Mid-City. And um, it was, or tornado, the likes of which most people had never seen because the funnel cloud that descended to the earth was about a quarter of a mile wide. Most tornadoes have a f- much finer point or tip to the tornado and can be incredibly destructive because of the high winds. but. It is um, a much smaller swath in terms of its width. This particular tornado, though, had a swath of a quarter mile wide. And as it ripped through neighborhoods, it would take out multiple blocks of houses leveled to the ground. I worked with somebody whose home was in that neighborhood. And fortunately, he had gone to a storm shelter in the neighborhood And uh, his house was destroyed. His cars were lifted up and moved from the driveway. And I'm not sure that he ever found the cars. I'm not sure. It was devastation and a tragedy that the people in Oklahoma rallied around to try and provide um, recovery and relief for this community that had been taken out by an enormous tornado. I've never seen a tornado But I am certain, based on having driven through um, that neighborhood in the days that followed, even though it was cordoned off, you could see it from the highway. And as you would drive by, you would see the utter devastation of a neighborhood. And I didn't see the tornado, but I saw the evidence of the tornado. Now, in a very different way, the opening of Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about things you don't see, but you know exist because of the evidence. I guess somebody could say that 50 bulldozers came through and leveled the neighborhood, but you also think it would look very different if 50 bulldozers came through. It had the looks of everything you would think high winds would do, even though I can't see wind. I see the evidence of wind, I see the trees moving, I see palm trees leaning over here in California, I see waves on an ocean, I feel wind, but I don't see the wind, just the evidence of the wind. The Holy Spirit is just that, a spirit. I've never seen the Holy Spirit, but I'm convinced I've seen evidence of the work of of the Holy Spirit, I see what happens in the aftermath of the Holy Spirit coming through. Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith, it's being certain of that for which we hope. Being certain of what we do not see. When I drove on the highway past that neighborhood, I was certain that the tornado had done a devastating work. I also often come away from having engaged with certain people knowing that they have been touched in a particular way by God's movement in their life. And so this writer of Hebrews is speaking about being certain of things in their faith, even though they may not have been there when they occurred. There were 500 people, Scripture tells us, over 500, who witnessed Jesus post-resurrection. There weren't that many who saw him put to death. There are only a few who saw him put into the grave and the grave sealed. But there are over 500 who saw him walking after all of that took place. Likely none in this church to whom Hebrews is witnessed. Written, maybe none of them actually saw Jesus or witnessed on the hill the ascension when Jesus left this earth and ascended into heaven. But the writer is saying faith is recognizing that we believe in some things because we have evidence of what God is doing and how God is at work. Evidence. Based on those who have gone before us. And it's interesting that the Hebrew writer then begins to talk about, we have faith that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what we see right now was made out of things that we don't see. I mean, I I find that happening all the time. My garden in the back where I grow food for um, my salads, my meals, what is formed there now that i can harvest wasn't there 3 months ago what i'm seeing was made out of something that i didn't see before i mean i knew there was a seedling but even looking at the seed it doesn't look anything like the head of lettuce or the peppers or or the dill it It doesn't look like what it was. It is as if this was made out of that which was not seen before. I enjoy the benefits of that amazing attribute. I get to eat it, enjoy it, be um, supplied nutrition from it. But I am in many ways planting the seeds with faith. And the little sprouts that begin to form, I water them in faith. I personally don't have any assurance or knowledge of how it all takes place. But my faith leads me to a very nutritious meal. And in the same fashion, Hebrews is saying, that's how we live daily. That's part of our life. So let's pay attention to those things. And then he gives some examples. He goes from creation in chapter 1 of Genesis and then jumps to chapter 4 of Genesis by talking about Cain and Abel. Cain, the firstborn, Abel, the secondborn. Cain took care of the fields. Abel took care of the flocks. Both of them brought an offering to God. On the surface, to some of us, generations, thousands of years later, this Storyline doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it seems like Cain brought an offering that came out of his vocation. He took care of the fields and he brought a grain offering. Abel took care of the flocks and he brought an animal offering or sacrifice. It said God was pleased with one and not with the other. And so in this moment, we are posed with the question why. They both seem like they did the same thing bringing an offering out of what they do. But once again, this is a very Jewish book, and the people who would read this would be very familiar with a Jewish tradition and understanding of the law that required sacrifices. A grain offering was an acknowledgment of God, but a sacrifice that involved blood was an atoning sacrifice. It was an acknowledgment of guilt. It was a sin offering. It not only made a statement that there is a God, but I cannot make a pathway to God on my own. There has to be a pathway that has been made for me. And in many ways, this became the work of the priest to make a way by which the people could approach God by making them clean according to the law. And so the last portion of argument, portions of chapter 4 through 10, where Jesus is the great high priest making a pathway for us, to use the story of Cain and Abel, where the one sacrifice was accepted and the other one was not, where Abel brought an offering that not only acknowledged that there is a God, but acknowledged that there is no way I can make a pathway to God without God opening a pathway for me. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is what faith is. It is humbly standing before God and saying, it's nothing I've done. It's simply because of the sacrifice you've provided. If we go back to this story, many translators in this old Genesis storyline, chapter 4, when God is confronting Cain after he has killed his brother, says that sin is crouching at the door and it's waiting there for you. There are at least some who would translate sin as sin offering. There is a sin offering crouching at the door waiting for you. It is, in that translation, the possibility that God is saying, I have provided for you a sin offering. Cain, in spite of the horrific thing you did in killing your brother, I have provided you a pathway of reconciliation. What you did was terrible, but there is nothing you can do that I can't overcome and provide a pathway of reconciliation for you. It is a powerful story, and the writer of this passage speaks that Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. He was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. That offering was Abel offering a sacrifice, recognizing his need. And Abel still speaks to us today. The whole story still speaks to us today. It is a story of acknowledging that which I don't always see but I see the evidence of what's been done. Now, I know you can argue and try and come up with different explanations. I mean, we could look at a hospital, and one might argue that that hospital is the coming to fruition of a vision that was driven out of compassion and love for those who are hurting and need help. Or somebody else could come to that same building and look at it and say, yeah, I actually see a building that was born out of a desire for economic gain, um, a place that could generate all kinds of revenue. And those are two very different perspectives on something that's seen and what preceded it. Then the answer, yeah, it could be both of those. But I know we have contributed to um, efforts of medical relief in different parts of the country through our missions, funds, and our giving in places where there is no economic gain, where it's driven out of love and compassion for those who are disadvantaged and hurting. And in that place, you see evidence of love. You may not actually see what love looks like because it's an entity that you can't wrap your hands around But you can wrap your hands around and your arms around the evidence of that love. And sometimes the enwrapping of arms is the evidence itself of love. So this writer is saying, You may not be able to see God's work right now in heaven as the great high priest, who having made a single sacrifice for all time, now sits down because the work has been complete. And as the writer said in chapter 10, and he waits for all enemies to become his footstool because it is finished. It has been accomplished. What Jesus Christ has done has been completed, and now it is coming to pass. Strange phrasing, but it's here and yet not fully realized. That's the space we live in. So you believe in what you see, but you also believe in what you don't see. That happens to us every day in the way we live. You believe what you have experienced, but you also believe what others have experienced. And that's what the writer in Hebrews is chapter, in chapter 11 is trying to do for us, is to say, here are some others who lived into this faith, believing in what was yet to come. The one sacrifice that would end all sacrifices, that would satisfy all the components of the law and would set us free. And now we have the privilege of listening to those who have gone before us and lived in such a way that they had faith that what we have known has come to pass now becomes faith for us to believe and hold steady to the faith. So we get the privilege of learning from people like Cain and Abel. We also get to learn from people who are our mentors, those who have influenced us, those whose lives show evidence of God's love. I may not be able to walk up and touch God, but I can touch and hold and watch and care for those whose God's spirit has filled and through whom God's love pours out. I long to be such an individual, but to do so requires faith. Faith that comes in humility, knowing that I need. I need a savior. I need something that opens up the pathway to God. I need one who will help reconcile me in spite of what I've done. I need an atonement for my sinfulness and disobedience, both things I know and things I don't know, both things that I've done on my own and simply by participation in my community. For these things, I need forgiveness. I need an atonement. I need Christ. And Christ has come. And Christ has provided that very way. This is the chapter of faith in many ways, the culmination of the argument, the, the final exclamation point on what it means to hold tenaciously to that which God has entrusted to us, to you and to me. So I invite you, as the writer of Hebrews does, to hold steady to the faith that has been presented to you to the spirit that God offers to you to dwell inside of you, to the Christ that serves as our great high priest and the great sacrifice to reconcile us to our creator. To that end, I would love the privilege to pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your mercy before we even knew we needed mercy. For pursuing us before we ever thought we needed any help. For loving and sacrificing on our behalf before we ever asked for you to do anything. You have been preparing a pathway for us that helps us to move into the best we can be. Your image stamped within. A hopefulness that what we have messed up can be used to our good and to your kingdom. So we know the people that have gone before us. It doesn't start with Cain, uh, stop with Cain and Abel, but goes on in that book to speak of people like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, of many others that are listed who gave of themselves in sacrificial ways because they had a faith. A faith. And so we are invited to step in faith onto those places where we have evidence, we have hope, but there is also this realm that others can argue against and push against. But this morning, Lord, will you give us a confidence? Will you empower us? Will your spirit enable us to live in such a way that then we become evidence for others we become movements of your spirit we become vessels of love forgiveness and reconciliation we become ones who point the way to Christ the way the pathway to eternal communion with you for that Lord we thank you and praise your wonderful name amen I hope this week is a blessed week for you. I hope you spend some time in scripture. I hope God's face shines upon you. God's love pours through you. God's peace dwells in you. So may you be blessed with God's peace this week. Amen.